If you're new, we have one more week after this in a series that I call Homesick. I'll give you the one minute. Homesick is this, it's the, when things are really good, marriage is good, kids are good, they're saying yes, father, to you. All right, a miracle happens, they're obedient. You're like, wow, job is good. You feel like you're doing something that's worthwhile, you've got purpose, right? Your football team pulls off the big upset, wins. And yet, in the moments of darkness or driving your car or waking up or going to sleep, there's still this nagging feeling that you sense, is this it? Is this all there is? Things are really good, but is this it? I call that the echo of Eden because you and I weren't designed for things to be good. We are designed for things to be great, fantastic, super And so we have in our brains this idea that they're supposed to be better than they ever possibly could be. And you know the story. That's where our great, 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 great grandfather and grandmother lived, Adam and Eve. And then they rebelled. They committed treason against the king and were exiled out of Eden. And the Bible says they lived east of Eden. We've lived east of Eden since Genesis 1 and 2. And our hearts know that's where we should live. But we don't. The good news is, That's where we're headed for those that follow Jesus. Revelation 21 and 22. There's a garden city with all these images from Eden and that's our destination. So we're headed there. But what do we do in the middle? Well, amazingly, much of the Bible is about people that lived in exile, outside of their homeland, outside where they were. And you get these lessons from these guys and gals about how they did super well in exile. So that's what we've been doing. So we saw Moses, who was double exiled, and he fought the Pharaoh. And then we saw Esther, who risked everything for her people. And then we saw Ezra, who revived a dead people. And then we saw Nehemiah, who cared. Well, today we're looking at Daniel. So open with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter one. And we learned this lesson from Daniel, and it's one thing, resist. It's resist. James 4, 7 says this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's the lesson we get. But in order to understand how Daniel resists, we have to look first at the attack that happens. Because you and I that are followers of Jesus, you gotta know this. There's an enemy who's gonna attack us. And he attacks in body, mind, and spirit. Attacks those three areas of the human psyche. All right, so let's take a look. Number one, the attack of the mind, verse three. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So Daniel, here's what's happened. When he's about 14 years old, Nebuchadnezzar comes, defeats Israel, grabs the cream of the crop, takes them across the desert to Babylon. 
Then he tells his chief of staff, hey, grab some of those Hebrew boys and send them to the University of Babylon, a three-year program. And the whole purpose of that program was to paganize them, to make them Babylonian so that then they'll help us rule Israel from here. That was the whole purpose. Let's make pagans out of them. We'll educate, we'll indoctrinate, we'll teach them our ways and they'll help us. Do you know that what's, that's what culture does? Culture is always preaching to us a message saying, this is how you're supposed to be. This is what you're supposed to believe. This is how you're supposed to live, right? Culture is always doing that. That's what culture does. And I think today when I was reflecting on this, I think the, the narrative of America, 21st century, 2018 is this. It no longer is theism, belief in God, but I wouldn't say it's atheism, a lack of a belief in God. I would say the predominant message that our culture now feeds us is me-ism. It's all about me. That the autonomous individual is the most important thing, an important way to live your life. It's the Everest of, of existence. You as an autonomous human, me. Like, would we hear this statement made today? Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Right? Would we hear that anymore? Would anyone say that anymore? Who has heard that before? Who's under 30 and has heard that before? Who knows who actually said that? At JFK, right? 1960. And in 1960, that was received like, yeah, absolutely. It's not about me. It's about something that's bigger than me, right? And that was just accepted as, okay, would that, would that work today? I don't know, right? We're in this, this uh, the selfie culture, okay? So I, I always joke with my girls, you know, I put Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, I put them all together and I just call them InstaFace, isn't that what it is? Look at my face, look at my face, look at my face. And I'm old enough to know like the difference that happened. So I did business for a long time and I'd go on these business meetings and I would go and we'd have lunch or dinner at some point. And at some point it would be pull out the wallet because in the wallet, what did I have? Pictures. Imagine if I did this, I pulled out my wallet. And I'm like, hey, look at this picture of me. Isn't that a great picture? Oh, here's a picture of me eating a meal. Isn't that such a great shot right there? Oh, here's a picture of me hiking a mountain. Look how blue my eyes look. They're so good right there. That could be like, you are nuts, right? And yet that's kind of what has evolved now. There's been this like, uh. now I'm not saying this is any different, right? Not, selfies weren't invented today. In fact, I have one picture. I have to show you this because I found this on a selfie. Look at this. It's the original selfie, right? <laughs> they need a selfie stick. Like, oh, that's heavy. I don't know. Took him like a year to find out if it's a good shot or not. Bill closed his eyes. Man, we gotta take it over. <laughs> All right? So this, uh, uh, a meistic kind of thing, idea, living, it's not something new, but I think it's just been amplified. And now it's become the thing to live for. It's you. So we have these statements like, well, what's in it for me? or I gotta do what's best for me, or I'm looking out for number one. Who's number one? 
me. That's who you're looking out for. And it's crept into the church as well. So we have these statements like, hey, God has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, that's not in the Bible. And sometimes if you read the plan God had for people in the Bible, it's not so wonderful. You're like, I would not want that life, right? I'm not saying there's not truth to that, but what it is is now the, the waves from culture lap into the church and then we start modifying things to make it more like the world. And we tend to do that, right? So the attack right here is by culture to make Daniel and the boys just like Babylon, just like happens to us. And I'll say this, if you want joy, learn this one lesson. It's not about you. That's the simplest way to have a happy life, to just learn it's not about me. I am not the center of the universe. Man, you get so much joy. I was thinking about this a number of years ago when I was driving down 6th Street on a Tuesday at five o'clock. You have a lot of thoughts at that time. This thought I can at least share with you, okay? <laughs> so I'm driving and I had this deja vu moment as I'm driving and I remember driving that as a 16-year-old on Friday night at about 9.30 at night. The cruise, remember that? When you'd go up and down 6th Street and 7th Street and you'd hit McDonald's and go through and then either hit the old DMV or go down to uh, Tap Rock and turn right there. Just, man, that was so much fun. And what was the funnest part about it? You driving by yourself? Traffic, other people. It increased your odds of seeing a good looking girl. You know, it's like, yeah, I want traffic. But when I was there on Tuesday at five o'clock, what was the one thing I did not want? Traffic, right? I'm just sitting there and I'm like, go. The light is green. What is the mystery, right? How long have you been doing this? We're crying out loud, right? Just this, ugh, all this anger. Why? Because you're in my way. Get out of my way. It's about me. When you finally get to the point in your life, when you realize you're not the point, man, you can enjoy life. You're a better spouse because your spouse is not there to serve your needs. It's not about you. You're a better mom and dad. Your kids aren't there to represent you in some kind of way, right? Like, Youth sports now, to me, are weird. They're getting really weird. Go, if you wanna just see, someone should do a, a, a thesis project on men and youth sports because it gets weird, right? You pulled my son, right? He's the best player on the peewee football team. How could you pull him? It's like, bro, a giant win is for your son not to pee his pants. I mean, that's just, all right, let's go get pizza. No one peed their pants today. But no, it's like, ah, the scouts for the beavers are here, man. He's so good he could play for them this year, which is probably true. <laughs> oh, sadly, man. It gets nuts. It's not about you. We have to know and identify this is what culture is doing to us and realize, yeah, I'm not doing that. So the attack, number one, is on his mind. I'm gonna take the culture of Babylon and I'm gonna force it on you and indoctrinate you to it. And you're gonna become Babylonian, pagan. Attack number one. Attack number two is the body. Verse five. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate 
and a daily portion of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. If you know this story, um, it ends with them having a vegetarian diet for three years, which to me is the saddest part of the entire story. Like, oh my goodness. But the first option is this spread. And it says twice, it's the king's stuff. It's the best the land had to offer. This is the same food that the king is eating. What the message to them was simple. If you play your cards right, if you listen to us, if you get indoctrinated correctly, you will eat this for the rest of your life. You are set up for life. You're gonna eat at the king's table, right? Woo! That's temptation. We have to, as Christians, understand that the spread that Babylon puts on is super enticing, right? We can look at our kids or look at young people, like, come on, just resist. Remember, the spread that Babylon puts on looks unbelievable. In comparison, Christianity is gonna look like eating celery. That's the comparison. And it's there, and we have to acknowledge that. Man, they dress it up, they make it look unbelievable. They do it all the time. It's a message our culture just constantly, look at this spread. Look at that. We have to start understanding like the, the stories in the Bible are presented and given to us to widen the way we look at how life is lived. Is life about feasting at Babylon's table or is it something else? And we gotta be really honest about how attractive it looks. The Bible is. It just says sin is pleasurable for a season. That, that totally, 100%, that looks like fun. It probably is fun for a season. But if you eat there too long, it's clogged arteries and a heart attack because sin always leads to death. We're gonna be okay with that. That we preach the gospel, not because it's the easy path, we preach the gospel because it's true. That's it. We preach it because this is the true way to live, okay? So like, um, one of the things I'm always trying to do with people is, is like explain the purpose of the Bible. And I have, I have um, people that say this to me, that the Bible is written by men to control men, by the church to bring in money in the church and to control people. Whenever they say that, this is what I always say to them. Why is the book of Job in there then? How did that help men control people and get them into the church? Right, you know the book of Job? A man who does everything right lives a stellar, brilliant life. God even says it. There's no one as good as him. As a reward, all his kids die. He loses all of his flocks. His barn gets torn down by a tornado. The only thing he's left with is his wife, which is a little bit like, hmm, okay. How does that help? Hey, come follow Jesus, be like Job, lose everything but your nagging wife. No, that doesn't help. But the Bible is being honest about how life is. That's what it's doing. And it's saying there's actually a different way, a higher way to live life. That's what it's saying, okay? So I, I am always telling my girls, yeah, that looks like fun, totally. But what are the repercussions of it? What are the results of it? Where does it get you, okay? So the, our culture, I think, has been Babylonized now to this point. We are a sensual culture. That's what we are. 
that, that we live for the ple- pleasing of our senses, okay? I call it sola felis. Are there any Reformation people in here that like the Reformation? Man, okay. So if you know the Reformation, I'll give you a little, a little tidbit. There are five things the Reformation said. This is what we are basing um, our worldview on. And they're called solas, onlys. Sola Scriptura, only on Scripture. Sola Christus, only Christ. Sola Fide, only faith. Sola Gratia, only grace. Sola Gloria Deo, only God's glory, right? It was the five solas. I say today, we have one, sola felis. Whatever makes me feel good, that's what I'm going to do. And like our language betrays us now. I'm talking to my kids now and they, they always say this. It's not, hey, I'm thinking this, dad. It's I feel. And I'm always correcting my girls. Don't tell me how you feel. Tell me how you're thinking because your feelings are gonna go up and down and all over the place. Tell me what you are thinking. And for them, maybe they can't draw the line in it. It's to them the same, but to me, it's a massive difference. Tell me what you're thinking because we can't go by what you feel. And here's what's happened in Western civilization. If you look back, for most of Western civilization, this is what we said. The human was born to be saved. That something happened to humans at some point in our history, Genesis 3, that broke us and a snake wrapped around our heart and bit us and started to poison us. And out of that poison comes war and violence and fighting and envy and jealousy. We turn earth into hell is what we did. So human had to be saved. That, that reigned till about 120 years ago. And then with Freud and these other guys, here's what happened. It became the psychological human. And the psychological human wasn't born to be saved. The psychological human was born to be pleased. Pleasure. Pleasure became God. And so now it was, the whole process is now be comfortable with whatever pleases you. So if this thing or that activity or whatever it is, if that pleases you, then we're gonna make you comfortable with that. And then whatever line stood in the way before that said, no, you shouldn't do that. That's harmful to you. It was removed and started to be moved. And once you start moving lines on behavior, you just don't stop. There's no reason to. And I was sharing with some pastors. I said, the next big one is gonna be polygamy. Like it's already coming. It's totally already coming. It's why can't I marry two guys or three guys or five guys? Or why can't I do that? Sola felis. I feel like this is best for me. I feel like, why can't I? And if people want scriptural backing to do that, guess what they find in the Bible? A lot of people that did that. Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon just had a thousand of them. So, right? They can find it. It's coming because it's sola felis. It's what I feel. That is the governing principle. It's sensuality. The body is king now. Please me. How do you battle that? Simple, Genesis 2. God's design was Genesis 2. One man, one woman, one life. From Genesis 3 on, it's recording history. God was not happy. It wasn't like saying to Solomon, yeah, dude, marry a thousand wives, no problem. It's just recording. This is what this broken human did. So just because you can find it in the Bible doesn't mean God said, hey, that's great. That's what I want. No, you go to Genesis 2. You go to Jesus' word and in Matthew 19, where he says, this is what it's supposed to be. One man, one woman, one life. That's what you go to, okay? So the attack is on the mind, it's on the body. Look at this feast, sensuality. And then thirdly, 
And lastly, on the spirit. Verse seven, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Here's what's happening right here. Their Hebrew names identified them as followers of Yahweh. And their names mean something. So these guys take their identity as Yahweh followers and change it to a different identity. So Daniel, his name means God is my judge. His name is changed to Belteshazzar, which means protect his life. Marduk, protect his life. Hananiah means Yahweh showed grace. His name is changed to Shadrach, command of the moon god. Mishael means who is like God. His name Meshach means who is like the moon god. And Azariah, which means Yahweh has helped, is turned into Abednego, servant of the god Nego. See what's happening there? You're not followers of Yahweh anymore. You're followers of our God, Marduk. And what an ancient civilization believed was this. If we beat you in war, that meant our God is stronger than your God. So it's a way of ridiculing their faith. You serve a weak God who couldn't even defend his own land. Our God is greater than your God. It was a way to ridicule them and to put them down. Same thing happens to us today, right? On our spirits, on our kids' spirits. You believe in Jesus? How can you believe in Jesus? You, you believe in the Bible? Oh, there's errors all over in the Bible. Oh, come on, it was written by men to control men. There's all these attacks that will happen to us. And we have to just know it's coming. These attacks are coming, right? Richard Dawkins, the high priest of atheism, in his books, he says this, there's two kinds of people. There's brights and there's dims. Guess who the dims are? Anyone that believes in God. Just ridiculing, just, yeah, I mean, straight out ridiculing. And we have to, no, that's coming in our spirits, okay? There's gonna be an attack on our body, our mind, and our spirit. So what does he do to defend himself? How do we, as Christians, who probably face a very similar culture as Babylon, how do we today resist these things? Well, notice what he does. Number one, verse eight. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. Number one, the attack came in the mind. So the first thing Daniel does is he defends himself in his mind. The battlefield is the mind. When it comes to temptation or anything, it all begins right here. What am I deciding right here? And then my body follows what my mind's decided. He resolved. He put a line in the sand. I will not eat the king's food. I won't go to that feast. I won't sit at that table and defile myself. He put a line in the sand. And then what we'll see, if you read this story, he actually had a plan to hold his line because the captain, the chief of staff is like, bro, you can't do that. Well, you gotta eat this food. He's like, okay, give me a test. For 10 days, me and my three buddies will only eat veggies, celery. Check us out after 10 days. He had a plan. Do we have plans for temptation? Plans when we know there's gonna be a feast out there and it's gonna be super, super sensual and it's gonna try to get me. Do you have a plan in your life to have resolve against that? 
If you don't plan, you will dissolve. If you don't, if you don't resolve, I should say, you will dissolve. That's what's gonna happen. If you're a young man in here, do you have lines where you say, I'm not, I'm not going that? And then you have a plan to say, this is how I'm going to keep myself from going there. Young ladies, do you have that? Lines where you say, I will not do that. And then a plan to say, if this comes, if the feast is set for me, here's my plan to walk myself out of that situation and to get away from it. And you better, we plan for all kinds of things. We should plan for temptation because we have a really good enemy who knows exactly how to get us. And if we're not battling back in some way, you and I will fail, okay? Here's what amazes me. Daniel's 14 years old when he does this. I think about my kids and I love my kids. Would this work with my 14 year old, 500 miles away from me in a super, super hard situation? Boy, I don't know. I don't know. I think a mistake that the church has made in the last 30 or 40 years is this, trying to be relevant and normal. We're trying to be relevant and normal to a culture that's Babylonized. Why? Why? Why do I want to be relevant to that? We should stand out and stand up and be different. And we should applaud the fact that we're not that way. That's what we should be doing. But for some reason, I think the enemy has tricked us into being, you gotta be relevant, you gotta be normal, you gotta fit in. Really? I don't think so. I think we should stand out and be different. I'd love to know how to like present to like in videos or whatever it is, like these brilliant people of the faith over the last 2000 years that have stood up and been history changers because they did not, they did not go with the flow. G.K. Chesterton said this, he said, every dead thing goes with the flow. It takes a living, brilliant creature to swim against it. That's what we should be raising up to our kids. Yeah, don't go with the flow. Be a living, brilliant creature that swims against it because that flow is clogged arteries and death. First, it begins in the mind. I resolve not to eat the king's meat. Number two, his body. Verse 11 says, then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. How does he protect himself, his body? By buddies. He's got three other guys, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, three other buddies that join with him in this. And that's what gives him strength to say no, to the king's table. And you gotta know this. There were more than four Hebrew boys there. Probably 30, 40, 50. Only four of them said no. The other 36 said, hey, no problem. We'll eat at that table. And they disappear into history and we never hear from them again. These four, because of a very difficult time, forged a relationship that we'll see at the end of this is brilliant. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. You gotta be connected. I found this out in my life. Um, If you know my story, you know at 20, I really rededicated my life to the Lord. It was probably my mom's faith up to that point. I made it my own. I'm going to Oregon State University, University of Babylon, no doubt. And I saw on the syllabus this class, Philosophy 390, and it just said Jesus. And I'm like, 
Oh my goodness. I get to go to school and learn about Jesus? How cool is this? So I signed up for it. My mom warned me, look out. I don't know if they exactly, like I was just naive. I had no idea. So I take this class and the professor is Marcus Borg. And um, it was apparent to me pretty quickly that the Jesus he was teaching was not the Jesus that I knew. I, I, I sensed that very quickly. Plus he dropped an F-bomb in class, which at that point I'd been in, you know, I'm a junior at this point. I'd never been in a class where a teacher had cussed. And here's a guy who says, hey, I, I'm a Christian and I'm gonna teach you about Jesus. And he's like, well, I'm like, whoa, hey, that's not normal. Okay. And then he systematically began to teach a different Jesus. But at first, here's what I had. I had this young man, and then I had this 40-year-old lady who was actually coming and taking this class because she was interested in it. And they were both solid believers in Jesus. So it was the three of us and we'd get together before class and we'd actually pray. Jesus, help us have the right answers and help us to know how to do this. And, and, but, but by about the third week, we sat together. By the third week, the young man moved to another place. And then you could just hear what he was saying. He was, he was just regurgitating it. And then it was just me and this gal. But by about the fifth week, she just stopped coming to class. And I remember the first week she didn't show up, I remember my heart sank. I was like, oh no, it's just me now. And it was, a long, it was one day a week. It was a Tuesday night from seven to 9.30, two and a half hour class. And I'd just get hammered. And I'd open up the Bible and I'd be like, no, wait a second. Cause he'd say something about Jesus. And I would literally open the gospels. I didn't know any theology, but I knew the story of Jesus. I did know that very well. So I'd be like, wait, it says this in the Bible. And this is what he'd do to me. He'd be like, <clears throat> Matthew do you know Aramaic? I'd be like, no, is he in the class with us? Where is he at? I'd like to know him, I think. <laughs> if you knew Aramaic, you would know <clears throat> that the word that Jesus uses there couldn't have possibly been a word he used because it didn't exist in the first century. So we know that was added loud later. I'd be like, but it says it in my Bible. Yeah, but it's wrong. Ah. And over the course of the next five weeks, this 10 week class, he just dismantled my faith in Jesus. I was all by myself. At the end of it, if you know, I had two years of dark doubt that came out of that class because I was by myself trying to battle it on my own and I failed. But praise God, he is faithful, brought me back in and I'm way stronger because of that. Because now I'm like, I want to know the answer to questions like that, right? But you gotta have a crew. I do not believe we would have Daniel today if it was not for Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, you've got to have a crew. Man, I am very, very selective about the kids that my girls run with. I'll be very selective about the boys that my boys run with, because I know this truth. I want them to be hanging out with the Hananiahs and the Azariahs and the, and the Mishaels. I want them hanging out with those kind of people because it forges these deep, brilliant relationships. You gotta be connected. And then lastly, and I'll be done quickly, the spirit. Notice something, verse eight, and this is the way the story reads. Sometimes we immediately wanna take a story and impose upon it our theological system. But notice how the story reads. Verse eight, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. Verse nine, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion right? There's a bunch of other Hebrew kids there. Daniel makes this resolve. And then God says, I'm going to give you favor. Then verse 17, 
And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all vision and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, all the other Hebrews, among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. Brilliant. Daniel resolved and God got involved. Now, you might struggle with that order. I'm just reading the order from the Bible. Daniel resolved, verse eight, and then God says, awesome, you four. I'm gonna give you something special. I'm gonna give you understanding. He gave them understanding in the Babylonian literature. Fascinating to me. You're gonna know this truth better than they know it or the falsehoods of it. You're gonna know it better than them. Brilliant, okay? So what happens often in Christianity is we do this um, on things like God's sovereignty and human responsibility. We end up going to one way or the other. Well, is it all about me resolving or is it all about God doing something, right? So one camp will go way over here to God's sovereignty. And they'll be like, well, if God wants me to stand before the king, then he knows where I'm at. I'll be on my couch watching Netflix. And whenever he wants to grab me, he's sovereign, he can do that. And it ends up becoming kind of fatalistic. It can tend towards that. And I talk to people like that. Well, you know, if God wants me to do it, then you know, he'll, he'll tell me. Well, I don't know about that. And I always ask them this, how's that working for you? How's your, that, 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 that philosophy, how's it actually working for you? Well, I've watched Star Trek every episode, twice. Mm. But the other option is to me, maybe worse. It's, a, it's all up to me. And then those people are just like forcing their ways on everybody. Like, what are you doing? You're not doing enough. And come on, come on. You're like, oh man, give me a break. And they end up being burnt out legalists. Or I just say, there's this beautiful thing in the middle that I call partnership. And it's amazing. And I think you see it in scripture, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling human responsibility. For it's God that works in you both to do and will of his good pleasure, God's sovereignty. And if you try to like make those two things fit in your head, good luck with that. Your head explodes because there's a mystery to it. I don't care about order. Is it God first or me first? I think mostly it's God first. You know, on salvation, no doubt about it, God initiates. But from that point on, maybe we need to be more resolving. Maybe we need to do more of that. And my analogy is this. It's like two pedals on a bicycle. God's sovereignty is one. Human responsibility is the other. God pricks my heart and says, Matt, go there and talk to this guy. And then I have the choice to say, okay, I'll respond. And then we pedal. God, give to that person. Okay, and I respond. And then we move. God, or, or Matt, obey what I'm telling you to do. Pick up your Bible, read it. Pray for this person write a letter and then I respond and I do it and we move forward. And there's this beautiful, incredible movement forward in the Christ life when I balance those two things like two pedals on a bicycle. And I think that's what you see happening right here. These four guys say, we're not doing that. And God's like, yes, let's go. And here's how it ends. These four guys stand before King Nebuchadnezzar 
one of the most powerful kings in all the history of empires. He is an absolute monarch, meaning there's no one that tells him he can't do it. There's no law that he can't on a whim change. He's an absolute monarch. And by chapter four, he goes insane and then he gets saved and becomes a believer in Yahweh. It's amazing. Now, I don't think there was ever a time where Daniel and these three guys were like, hey, you know, if we do this and we make resolve and, and we do that, walk out this, this thing right, the king's gonna get saved. Now they just said, this is what we're supposed to do. And we're just gonna pedal forward a little bit. And then God said, I'm gonna do in your life exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or think for my glory. I'm gonna save that king. I love that. I think that opportunity is for all of us that when we resist well the culture that we live in and we stop trying to say, I'm gonna be normal. We stop saying that, just, I don't care to be normal. I wanna be like Jesus. When we start saying that, and I'm gonna resist the pressure of this culture to make me into something, then God says, awesome. I'm gonna do something, Matt, with your life, as you order with your life, that's gonna be exceedingly, abundantly above all you could ask or think. The last person you ever thought would get saved become saved. That's what I think happens. So we're supposed to resist well. Resist well the culture that's trying to cram us into its mold instead having our minds renewed by Jesus our King. And so maybe you're here today and maybe you feel like, man, Matt, I thought I had resolve, but last night I blew it. I thought I was standing up and standing out, but I sat at the king's table and feasted. I feel like such a failure. We come and we take communion every Sunday because here's what it reminds us of. We don't always look like Jesus, but we should always look like a people that need Jesus. And we come hungry saying, help me, help my resolve. It's not as good as I want it to be. Help me to have a plan against temptation because it's working me right now. So we come as people that say, we are a people that always need you, Jesus. And we need you and we're reminded of that at communion. And so when you take communion today, you just say, Jesus, help my resolve. Jesus, remind me that I'm always gonna need you. And I'm not gonna stand on my own. That without you, I can do nothing. Remind me of that. And what he does is, is he does that for us. And he uses us in ways that we can't imagine at our homes, at schools, at the workplace. And my prayer is that if we resist well, the most crazy people you could ever imagine in our city get saved. That's my hope. And so, Father, we come to your table, not the Babylonian table. And we come this morning to refix our eyes upon you, our archegos, our hero, the author and finisher of our faith. We fix our eyes upon you. And we pray, Lord, that this day as we eat and as we drink, that our ability to stand out and stand up would be increased. That whatever power culture has over us to conform us to its image, would this day be unleashed and we would be set free 
to be conformed to your image. So may we eat and may we drink of your power and your strength. And may you do through each one of us exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think for your glory and for your kingdom. May we see the kings of Grants Pass, Josephine County, the leaders, the high people, may we see them get saved, we pray. May we see salvation go out from the body of Christ here and at other bodies by a people that resist the culture and exist as a colony of heaven calling other people to that same existence. And may we see them get saved, we pray. May we be salt and light. And I ask this in your name, amen.